Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. How are you? I'm good. Great. And you? Yeah, good. Amazing. Yes. Well, we finally fixed our mic issue. That yeah. That has been plaguing us for the past two weeks. Has it been two weeks? It's only been one. It came out last it, week. Is it only one? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, Still. we felt like a bunch of amateurs for a second there. <laughs> yeah, it was tough, but we figured it out. Mainly Alex figured it out, but we love to see it. Well, I just, you gave me the Google search terms, so you have the assist. We love Google. It's one of those things where it's just like you had to go somewhere and click a button. Sometimes you just got to give it a goog, you know? Give it a goog. But it's just so frustrating when it's that easy, but also nice. You know what I mean? There's just a conflict of emotions, but... It's positive at the end of the day. Yeah. On that positive note, the bonus episode did also come out this week. So for those of you who want to know what it is... It is about an Air Force pilot who took his 10-year-old son skiing in Turkey, and the two got lost on the trail in some freak snowstorm, and they basically have to wander blindly into the wilderness. They end up in a cave, and they're stuck. So it's an intense one. We yeah. we uh, recorded it last night, so now you have heard the story. What did you think? Uh, it was emotional for me. Definitely emotional. Um, anytime there is parent and children innocent children you know involved it's very touchy correct but, um, but at the end of the day we do know that they both live so remember we that love to hear it Keep that in um mind. anyway why don't we jump into this week's story it's crazy shall i say crazy we always say that we always I mean, use that word but hey it fits can we just say it's a tradition now I so think we so. don't have to come up with new words you're right it's our word we claim crazy yeah it's ours crazy tm stop it <laughs> There's only so many English words, okay? We've picked this one. Sure. Why don't we jump in? Let's jump in. Okay. So, in the spring of 2009, 29-year-old Trisha Leffler ended up in Boston, Massachusetts, kind of on a whim. At the time, she had been working as an escort based in Las Vegas. However, for the prior two years, she had spent her time traveling from city to city selling her services to men. There wasn't any real reason why she chose Boston. It was just the next city that she ended up in. Trisha chose to travel to the Back Bay area in Boston, which is known for its fancy hotels, exclusive boutiques, and good restaurants. So she knew that the area would be very lucrative for her. She checked herself into the Weston Copley Hotel and immediately went online to craigslist.com and placed an ad in the erotic services section. Her post said something along the lines of, I'm a sweet blonde, come and relax with me, as well as listing her phone number. I'm sure we've all heard of Craigslist, but for those of you who don't know, Craigslist is a website where you can advertise and find services. If you want to buy a couch, find an apartment, or apparently get an escort for the night. What Trisha was doing was incredibly dangerous, even in the sex work realm, because she was on her own. She didn't have any kind of protection with her, and no one knew where she was. So if the situation went sideways, she was on her own. And as per usual, upon posting her ad, she started getting calls immediately. Wait, how quickly? Immediately? She said immediately. Like, as soon as she posted it, it's like maybe two minutes later, she's getting a phone call. Wow. Right? So they're sitting there, like, hitting refresh? 
I mean, I guess if you're someone scouring the erotic services section of Craigslist, maybe it's something you look at frequently. I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. This was something that Trisha had done a lot. So the night of April 10th, 2009, when she saw the man who answered her ad for the first time, she felt safe. This man was young and good-looking, which means nothing, but to Trisha, it was definitely disarming. He didn't seem dangerous at first glance. But things went wrong very quickly. Immediately after closing and locking the door, this man pulled out a gun and pointed it at Trisha. She backed up a little bit into the room in shock, but he told her, if you do everything I say, no harm is going to come to you. He had Trisha put her hands behind her back and lay on her stomach on the bed. He then walked toward her and put the gun back in his pocket. He put on these black leather gloves and took out some plastic zip ties and put a zip tie on each of her wrists and pretty much made handcuffs out of them. At this point, Trisha was absolutely terrified because she had no idea what this man was capable of. As she lay there, he went into her suitcase and took out $800 in cash that she had with her, along with her credit cards and debit cards. This whole time, he wasn't hiding his face. And at that point, he had taken off his gloves and was very focused on getting his number off of Trisha's phone. So he grabbed it and started fiddling with it. But him grabbing the phone without gloves on completely defeated the purpose of the gloves in the first place. And he wasn't hiding his face. So it was just like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I was like, fingerprints, and then when you make a call, it's not like deleting it on the phone is deleting it. Right. They keep records of it. Right. But, you know, he's doing his best, I guess. I don't know. He then picked up a pair of Trisha's underwear, which were on the floor, and he put them in his pocket, which she definitely thought was very strange. She didn't know what he wanted with her. He started pacing back and forth around the room looking for something before pulling her off the bed and leading her into the bathroom. He tied her to the doorknob inside the bathroom and took out a knife and cut the phone lines to the room. He then came back over to Trisha in the bathroom and put three pieces of duct tape over her mouth. Trisha's next thought was really smart because she had noticed that up until that point, he hadn't put his gloves back on, which meant that his fingerprints were all over the tape that he had put on her mouth. And thankfully, after all of that, he shut the door to the bathroom and he left the hotel room altogether, leaving Trisha tied to the doorknob. She was able to get out of her ties in only about 20 to 30 seconds, which was good, but she didn't know if he was waiting for her outside the door. She thought he had left, but she wasn't entirely positive. But finally, she opened up the bathroom, saw no one was in the room, and then looked out of the peephole on the door to see that there was nobody out in the hallway either. She opened the door to the hotel room very slowly and looked both ways down the hallway and still saw no one. She then crept down the hall to see if he was hiding down by the elevator, and again, he was not there. Which is extremely brave. I would have just run the hell out of there, but she was, like, looking for him. Yeah, no, I would go immediately to the front desk. Right. She was still nervous, but went back to the room, grabbed her room key, shut the door behind her before knocking on the neighbor's door to ask if she could call security because she had just been robbed at gunpoint. Surprisingly, from the jump, the Boston police took Trisha seriously, which is good considering the law doesn't always treat sex workers with basic human decency. But according to Trisha, they were actually very respectful toward her and didn't even say anything about what she had been doing there. Their only priority was catching this man. 
So the next day, Trisha was called down to the police station where they showed her photos from the surveillance footage to try and identify the man who had robbed her. And when she saw the still of the man she had described to the police the night before, she was able to identify that, yes, that was the man who had tied her up and robbed her. It was kind of stupid how easy it was for them to identify this man, but they speculated that he wasn't entirely concerned that she would go to the police in the first place. He knew there were cameras everywhere, but I guess he figured it was an easy enough crime and he didn't believe that she would call it in, considering she was doing sex work. This is this story really this easy? Um, well, we're not done, so... And I'm, I'm like, like, and that's it. He got arrested and happy I'm ending. I'm like, yeah, things are going too well. Yeah, well, he's kind of dumb. But no, we still have quite a bit of story to go. So after IDing this man, Trisha had given up her cell phone to the police for evidence. So because of that, she had to stay in the area for the next few days before she could get her phone back and leave. Just a few days later, on April 15th, Trisha got a call from police once again, and they said they needed to speak with her urgently. It was very important. She went down to the station, where again they showed her security camera images of the man who had attacked her. Upon seeing them, she was surprised how good of pictures they got of him, and asked where they got them from. They asked her if she was sure that this was the man who had attacked her, and she confirmed that yes, it was. She asked them if these were pictures from before he had come up to her room, and they told her no, these photos were taken from an entirely different hotel. They then told Trisha that the man had murdered a girl last night. Julissa Brisman was 25 years old and living in a small one-bedroom apartment with a roommate in Bensonhurst, New York City. When she wasn't working, she adored animals. She had her own dog, Coco Chanel, and she kept a photo of Coco on her nightstand at all times, even when she was traveling. She also volunteered at PETA to fight for animal rights. Julissa was a model and was so beautiful that people would pay her thousands of dollars just to come to their parties. She would either hand out food or drinks or just be there to fill the room. Along with modeling, Julissa also worked a slew of other jobs to make a more stable paycheck. She worked as a bartender, a masseuse, she worked in a tanning salon, basically she was hustling. She had gone through a period of time where she was drinking and partying a lot, which was only made worse by the fact that she was bartending and around liquor all the time, but when she saw that her drinking was getting out of control, she recognized that she needed to stop and said that she woke up one day and vowed that she would take better care of herself. In her diary, she wrote, quote, I had a taste of the sober life and I liked it. She even had gotten a tattoo of the date she started her sobriety, which was September 19th, 2008. One of her main motivators was her little sister. She wanted to be someone her little sister could look up to. Her mother also helped in motivating her. When one Mother's Day, she told Jalissa that the only thing she wanted for Mother's Day was her daughter's sobriety because she knew how hard it was to fight for that every day. Her biggest fear was relapsing. She even wrote in her diary, quote, Once that happens, I'll be a goner probably, and what will happen to my family, friends, acting, life. I love sobriety, and I'm afraid to ever lose it. Thankfully, though, she was doing really great with it, and she even had written out a list of people she had wronged or had wronged her. That way she could visit each of them individually to try to repair their relationships. She had also decided she wanted to go back to school to be a counselor. That way she could help people with the same things that she struggled with. She was described by her friends as a beautiful person inside and out who had lots of energy and someone they could always count on. 
but in April of 2009, Julissa was visiting Boston for work. That night, in the Marriott Hotel, a woman who had actually been in her room reading a crime novel had heard screaming outside of her door. After going to check on the noise, she immediately called hotel security. The security had received multiple calls around that time that said there was a woman laying down in the hallway in front of her room, possibly unconscious. Alan McCarthy was the security guard who found Julissa's body in the hallway outside of her room. She was laying on her stomach with her head pointed away from him, but after coming out to see if she was alright, he saw that the room was in complete disarray. He knelt down to her body and after pushing the hair out of her face, saw that she was covered in blood. He immediately called his security dispatcher to notify police and call an ambulance because something very terrible had happened. Julissa's skull had been fractured by what seemed to be the butt of a gun. She had also been shot three times in the heart, chest, and abdomen at very close range. She had bruises on her wrist, as well as a plastic zip tie on one of her wrists. She was 5'5", weighing only around 105 pounds, but it appeared as if she had fought back with everything she had. The mirrors and glass sliding door in the hotel room were completely shattered, the room was pulled apart, and she had skin under her fingernails. Police believed that night when he entered the room, he pulled a gun on Julissa and got at least one zip tie on her wrist before she fought back. This man was over six feet tall and more than 200 pounds, but she managed to do some damage before he shot her three times and fled, and she fell out of the room and into the hallway. Julissa had survived the initial attack, but later passed away at the Boston Medical Center. Before any of this news broke, one of Julissa's friends called the Boston police seemingly out of nowhere. This was Mary Simmons, who had been Julissa's boss at the tanning salon. She told the police that Julissa hadn't been answering her phone and she was really worried about her, which is when she got the terrible news that Julissa had been killed. But actually, Mary would be able to give the police a lot more information than they could even give to her. Mary knew that Jalissa was going to be at that hotel that night for an appointment that she had scheduled. Like Trisha, Julissa would also travel from city to city and advertise on Craigslist for massages. Mary knew this because she was helping Julissa get clients since she was very busy, but also it was a way for Julissa to stay safe because Mary always knew when Julissa had appointments, she knew the men's names, and she and Julissa would contact each other before every appointment and after, that way she knew nothing bad had happened. Which is why she knew to call the police, because Julissa hadn't called her after her last appointment. But because Mary had this information, she could tell the police exactly who Julissa had been with right before she was murdered. And that man was apparently named Andy. She gave police his email address that he had given on Craigslist and also gave them the password to the Craigslist and Julissa's email account. That way they could see the messages for themselves. A man named Mark Rash was then brought in to help investigators because he had once led the computer crime unit for the U.S. Department of Justice, so he was very good with technology. Upon diving into these emails, he saw that Julissa and Mary went by the name Morgan for the massage listings, just to be safe, and they only ever talked to Andy through email or text until just a few minutes before the appointment. Andy had emailed them and said, quote, I myself am visiting Boston and was looking for a 10 p.m. or later appointment tonight or tomorrow. Unfortunately, I will not be free any earlier. 
When he didn't get a response, he emailed again, saying, Morgan, I can still make it tonight, but I'm thinking tomorrow at 10 would be better for me, otherwise I'll be there tonight as planned. Thanks, Andy. She responded, and they decided that the next night around 10 would work best. That next night, Mary had gotten a call from the man saying that he was early for his appointment and was already at the hotel. She told him that he needed to wait for his appointment time at 10, but after that, he could head up to the 20th floor for his massage. Mary then called Julissa and told her what was happening, that this man was already in the lobby, and then hung up when he was supposed to come upstairs. That was the last time that she heard from Julissa. She called that night around 11 to check in, then 12, then again at 5.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., which is when she called the hotel and got transferred to the Boston police. Mark Rush looked into this phone call that happened between Mary and Andy, hoping it would lead to some address, but he soon figured out that it had come from a disposable phone, which brought them to the surveillance footage, which is when they called Trisha Leffler to see if the two attacks were connected. But once the news of this hit the media, people were extremely concerned. The media labeled this man as the Craigslist killer, and the case really began to take on a life of its own. And it wasn't long before the Craigslist killer found a new victim. Just two days after Jalissa's murder, police were called to a Holiday Inn Express in Warwick, Rhode Island, around 60 miles away from Boston. His victim was a stripper from Las Vegas who wanted to be referred to as Amber. Amber had been dancing at a local strip club called the Cadillac Lounge in Providence, Rhode Island. However, during her downtime that night, she had put out an ad on Craigslist offering private lap dances in her hotel room for $200. For the third time in seven days, a woman opened her hotel room door to a clean-cut, good-looking young man. And once again, after entering the room, Amber turned around to walk further in, and he pulled out a gun and pointed it at her. She said he looked nervous, and his hand was actually shaking as he pointed the gun at her. He told her he didn't want to kill her, but he was broke, and he needed either cards or money. So, of course, she told him that she would give him whatever he wanted. He immediately tied her up in handcuffs made out of zip ties, and laid her on the ground before he started rummaging through her room for money. At that point, her cell phone started ringing, which got him very freaked out, so he asked her who was calling. The caller was Amber's husband and business manager. He had been in the hotel lobby waiting for a signal that everything was okay, and when he didn't get that signal from Amber, he began calling and headed up to her room. Which is when her husband busted through the door because, of course, he had a key to her room. So he finds this gunman in the room with his wife, who then points the gun at him. So Amber's husband took off down the hallway. And thankfully, the attacker took off down the other hallway to flee and get away. Wow, so nobody got hurt. Nope, nobody got hurt. He zip-tied her, he held a gun to her, rummaged through her things, and when the husband showed up, both of them ran away. Wow. That's just the last thing I would have expected to happen. Right? He killed Jalissa. Yeah. And now shoots neither of them. I think that the reason he killed Jalissa was because she fought back. Yeah. Which is terrible. Yeah, I know. But the other two women didn't fight back, which is maybe the reason that he didn't end up killing them. I don't know. There's a lot of questions to this case. It's like you never really get any clear answers. But yeah, thankfully, neither of them got hurt. So Amber had a husband Mm -hmm. who was like, I mean, she was doing a private strip or she was like 
Yeah, she was being doing... an escort. No, from what it was described as, she was giving private lap dances. It wasn't like a, it wasn't sexual in nature. Interesting. Okay. Your husband's like your... Your bouncer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty good uh, situation they've got worked out. You know, they had, she gives so. him a, sing, a signal and if the signal doesn't come through, he's busting through the door. Yeah. But I mean, he ran away. So like... Yeah. <laughs> that is also funny. You know, it's like, what? Well, I mean, he had a gun. No, for sure. Like, I I can't fault him, I guess, but it just made me laugh. It's like, you're supposed to be the bouncer, but then you run away. But um, It would be funny. She's recalling it. He's like, (laughs) he was so heroic. He ran down the hall away from him. (laughs) And thankfully, the attacker ran the other direction. So he he fled. This guy fled. But not before security cameras captured his image in the stairwell and the lobby. While it seems very stupid that this man had no problem having his face out, the police believed that it was arrogance. He thought that he was smarter than everyone else and didn't expect to be caught. So he was like, I don't need to hide my face from these surveillance cameras because I'm too smart. (laughs) Which makes no sense. But it was stupidity because over the seven days of rage, he made several mistakes. Showing his face, not being aware of security cameras, but his biggest mistake of all was definitely unintentionally giving investigators a map to his front door. In Julissa's emails between her and this Andy guy, they were able to grab Andy's IP address, which is unique to each computer. So investigators traced that IP address and it led them to an apartment in a suburb just outside of Boston called Quincy. This apartment belonged to a man named Philip Markoff, which meant that they finally had a suspect. Investigators were shocked to find that Philip Markoff was a 23-year-old second-year medical student at Boston University. Wait, really? Yes. He was supposedly a brilliant student with a quote-unquote uncommoned mind. And you're just robbing people? And killing them, yeah. And killing people? Yeah. To pay your tuition? Loans, yeah, pretty much. So with this information, Boston's elite fugitive squad began an around-the-clock stakeout of Phillip's apartment. It began late Saturday night or early Sunday morning as they waited for someone to come out who looked like the man in the surveillance photos. And when someone did come out, they saw a man that very closely matched to the man in the photos. They watched him for an entire day before bringing him in for questioning. But before they brought him in, they wanted a positive ID. So they reached out once again to Trisha Leffler. So what were they staking out for? Like, what was the purpose of watching him for an entire day? I don't get that. I guess because they wanted to see if he matched the the man in the photos. Because they hadn't seen him yet. They just... Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you go, like, send somebody to knock on his door? Be like, Jimmy John's. (laughs) You would think. You know? I guess. Like, oh, yeah, wrong address. Yeah. Although I guess you wouldn't be able to, like, only the person who did that would be able to. But did they get get the stills? Yeah, but they wanted, like, a for sure ID of him. Because the photos from the surveillance footage weren't, like, entirely clear. It was either, like, his profile or the back of his head or, you know, there was a couple of his face, but they weren't entirely clear. So it was most likely him, but they wanted a positive ID. I wonder, did they need that in order to get a warrant to arrest him? Maybe yeah. they wanted to be really careful about it because they didn't have a ton of, like, physical evidence yet. I mean, I guess they kind of did, well, but they, they... Yeah, once they get his prints, they will. Yeah, and they did have prints. So 
Anyway, they wanted to get a positive ID before that, so they contact Trisha Leffler. She had gotten a call that morning from the assistant DA in Boston who told her that they had a photo lineup and asked her if she was in Boston. She had told them that no, she had actually left the day before and was now in New York City. At that point, it had been a week since Julissa's murder, and the investigation had become frantic when Philip Markoff and his fiancée, Megan McAllister, left the apartment with suitcases and bags. And then they got into their car and started heading down Route 95 South. So they were clearly going somewhere. The couple was headed to Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. So because of that, Boston police were frantic to make sure that they arrested him before he set foot over state lines. Because once that car crossed over the state line, they were out of Boston police's jurisdiction. So they couldn't really do anything. So the Boston DA rushed a New York detective over to Trisha's hotel room in Manhattan with a lineup of the photos that included Philip Markoff. And after looking through them one by one, Trisha was quickly able to identify photo number five as her attacker, which of course was Philip Markoff. So with this positive ID, the Boston police quickly got in contact with the fugitive unit and said, get him, you know? (laughs) They were like, hey man, arrest him. So, (laughs) what? Hey man, get him. That's what they said. That's a direct quote. No, it's not. But, you know, I imagine that's what they said. That's what I would say. Anyway, back on I-95, Markov's car was surrounded by police and pulled over. He was told that they had a warrant for his car. So he was told they needed to take his car back into Boston and he would be coming with them. And then police immediately informed him that he was under arrest for kidnapping, armed robbery, and murder. Oh, yeah. You did that, didn't you? It seems like it. So when his fiance Megan was told the news, she was in complete shock and just broke down because she had no idea that this was happening. Police said they had no reason to keep her there, so they allowed her to leave and fly to her parents' home in New Jersey while Markoff went to jail. And when Trisha heard that they finally had Philip Markoff in custody, she was extremely relieved and said that it felt like there was a huge weight that had been lifted off her chest because now he couldn't hurt anyone else. But now that Philip was in custody, the real questioning began. He definitely wasn't who you would expect to be committing these crimes. He was a young, good-looking medical student. Which is very interesting to me that good-looking people are just assumed to be good. Yeah, no, but that's a thing. Like, I know. Juries will give lighter sentences to good-looking people. I don't know. Something... Disarming? Something, like, something evolutionary or something? Maybe. It just disarms you, but yeah. yeah. Well, I, everyone has said it. You know, Trisha was like, oh, yeah, when I... was going to say that. Yeah, when she, when she saw him walk into her hotel room, she was like, oh, this man is safe. He was not. You know, when the police saw that he was the guy that was their number one suspect, they were shocked. The media was shocked. Like, nobody could believe that this man, who was young and good-looking, was capable of such terrible things. Pretty privileged man, you know? Yeah. So because of his good looks, he was kind of hiding in plain sight. But after looking into him more, investigators discovered that Philip Markoff had a whole other dark side to him. On the outside, he presented himself to society as the guy next door. He was a tall, blonde, and handsome medical student who was engaged to a beautiful woman. So this was the last thing that his friends and fiancé ever expected out of him. 
Megan Houston was Philip's friend and study partner at SUNY Albany, where they both were pre-med students. To her, Philip was just a dork, but she found that charming about him. And not only that, but Philip was a star student. He graduated college summa cum laude in just three years and was accepted to Boston University Medical School, which is top-ranked. Bro, three years? Three years. Pre-med. Pre- done in three years. Correct. And then he summa was... Summa ex- cum laude. Yeah. Or is it loud? Summa cum laude? Or loud? I actually don't know how to say it. Hey, well, we've said both now, so one of us I sounds... loud. Dumb. But yes, in three years, he graduated from a pre-med program and got accepted into a top-ranking medical school, like, di- directly after. Damn, and he's good-looking. Right. And tall and handsome and blonde. Like, what the fuck? I'm disarmed just hearing about it. Right? <laughs> you know it's mean? like, he didn't do it. No, he did. I mean, you would just assume that he has too much to lose. I guess. Like, don't you love life anyway? Right. If you're that hot, everyone Aren't... just kind of gives you what you want. Aren't you live, laugh, loving? Or yeah. what? I mean, like, <laughs> like, what more do you want? You want to, like, fucking rob people? Dude, you're about to be a millionaire once you graduate. Well, he was in buttloads of debt. Because... He's a gambling addict. He was a gambling addict. How'd Boom. you know? Well, nobody racks up a ton of debt. Yes, they do. For many other reasons. For medical school, they do. He was in has well, student loans. I know, but then you like could legitimately pay those off once yeah. you got a job. True, but, but but I would say if you have debt that you're committing crimes to pay off, you didn't accrue that debt for like good purposes. Good purposes. It's yeah. most likely gambling. Well, for him, it was a double whammy. He had a buttload of student loans. He was $130,000 in debt for student loans, and he was also a gambling addict. So there is that, which we're going to get into later. So basically, point being, no one could believe that Philip was behind these crimes. And once this information was released to the press, they dubbed him the killer geek, the clean cut killer, along with the Craigslist killer. So they- Guys, enough with like marketing. Alliteration. Yeah, the alliteration. The the clean cut killer. Yeah, just stop it. Like, it just makes it sound not as bad. You know what I mean? No, it totally does. It's almost like you're giving... The dork killer? Come on. You're giving him a nickname. Right. So they also plastered photos of Philip in his white doctor coat or graduating college over all over the news. So they're like, oh, the clean cut killer, the dork killer. Here's a photo of him being a doctor. But anyway, by 2009, Markoff was a second-year med student and was planning his wedding to his college girlfriend, Megan McAllister. It was supposed to be a gorgeous sunset ceremony at a beach resort in New Jersey, and now he was behind bars. The press definitely bombarded Megan at her parents' home in New Jersey, but she stayed mostly out of sight. But Megan, who had been dating Markoff for three years at that point, quickly came to his defense after his arrest. She wrote to the press, quote, Philip is a beautiful man inside and out and would not hurt a fly. Megan's father, Jim McAllister, also spoke to reporters in front of their home two days after Philip's arrest, saying that they were sending him lots of prayers and, you know, whatever, good vibes. But police, <laughs> <laughs> whatever, but police weren't making it easy for friends and family to come to his defense because just days after that, they identified the gun used to kill Julissa in Philip's apartment. It was like something out of a corny crime novel or show. They found the gun inside of a hollowed out copy of the book Grey's Anatomy, which is a basic reference book for doctors and medical students. So he literally hollowed out a gigantic book and put a gun in it. 
cool. I thought it, I was thinking TV show. The TV show Grey's Anatomy. I was like, the hit it's a show. TV show Shonda Rhimes wrote. Yeah. No, it's a book. It's an actual book that I also didn't know was a thing, but apparently it's a thing. And he hollowed it out and put the gun in it that he used to kill Julissa, which is, again, kind of dumb. How is he top medical student, but he's doing all this dumb shit? It seems like some of the smartest people are also some of the dumbest. People have said that to me. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, you've never killed anyone. You know what? And I plan to keep it that way. Good. And we're not putting the murder weapon in a fucking book. Right. Um, I will say, though. Whenever people call me dumb, it's just because they don't understand. Okay, it well, makes sense to me. This is a bit farther than you don't understand me, mom. It's a phase. It's not a phase. You know, it's a bit more than that. This is <laughs> this is some bad shit. Could you imagine his defense? Is it was a phase? <laughs> yeah, mom, I could. it was a phase. I I could. Ladies and gentlemen of the supposed jury, it was a phase. Look at how cute he is on the stand. Look at how sexy this man is. Look at his smile. His blonde hair. His blue eyes. Stupid. So the police didn't only find the gun inside of a hollowed out book. They also found both pairs of Trisha Leffler's underwear, as well as two more pairs of women's underwear that were hidden under his mattress. They didn't say who these other pairs were from, but it was starting to look like Philip wasn't just committing simple robberies gone wrong. It wasn't just about the money. It seemed like it was also about power, sex, and control. One night back in college, after more than a few drinks, Philip's friend Morgan Houston said she may have caught a glimpse of this thrill-seeking, darker side of Philip. They had been going up to the tower where she lived, and he had cornered her and pushed her up against a wall and tried to kiss her. She told him no, they were just friends, but he wasn't letting up, and she couldn't get him off of her because he was a big guy. But thankfully, one of her close friends had come along and was able to pull Philip off of her, and she got away upstairs. But she said that that wasn't the Philip she knew and just chalked it up to the alcohol. Oh. Bit intense. Yeah. The day after his arrest, a report surfaced that Markov had potentially been interested in homosexual sadomasochism with Markov as the submissive partner. It also came out that Markov used the email address sexaddict5385. However, crime blogger Steve Huff received a tip that told him if he added another 8 to that email address, it would lead him to a secret profile that nobody knew about. Which is when he found a profile under the name sexaddict53885 on alt.com, which is apparently a BDSM website, And on that website, he listed his interests as chains, collars, leashes, and experimentation with transgender individuals. So there's nothing wrong with any of that on its own. But clearly, Markov was a very dangerous person. They were certain that this sex addict 53885 was Markov because on his profile, they found his birthday was associated with the account, as well as an image of a male torso, which they also found on Markov's personal laptop. So it was him. An image of a torso? It was his, it was like he was posting a body shot. He was like, look at how hot I am. Oh. And they found that picture on his personal laptop. So it was his photo. Oh, okay. So all of this suggested to psychologist Casey Jordan that Philip Markoff's outside persona was potentially at war with his deeper desires. He was kind of leading a double life. 
Again, Casey Jordan said that on its own, that doesn't cause people to commit crimes, but very often it can cause what they call in criminology a fractured identity. Police also found in February of 2009, Markov used a fake ID to purchase a gun in New Hampshire, which was then identified to be the same gun that they found in his apartment. So because it was pretty clear that Philip Markoff may have done this before Trisha Leffler, District Attorney Dan Connolly made a public plea to other possible victims telling them to come forward. And it was around that time that Philip's parents and brother came to visit him in jail for the first time. Philip's mother worked at a casino, and his father was a dentist. By all accounts, he had a normal, happy upbringing. When they visited him, Philip reportedly told his brother to forget all about this and move to California because there was more damning evidence that was going to come out at some point. He literally was like, hey, family, leave the state. Sorry, I'm trying to wrap my head around why he's telling them to move to California when the internet exists and they're going to find out what the fuck he did anyway. I don't know. I think, well, I don't know if he told his parents to move to California, but he told his brother that. He's like, just get out of here. Go away. I mean, it doesn't, I don't know, we don't know. It's just what he said, allegedly, if you will. Megan also visited Philip in jail. There was absolutely no evidence that she knew anything of Philip's double life or anything he had been into at all. And during one of these visits, she told him to his face that the wedding was off. Megan had been questioned by police previously and was very willing to answer whatever questions they had and when they showed her the surveillance stills of the attacker in question she did say that it looked like philip she had been out of town for about a month visiting family at the time of the attacks and murder but she did say whenever she would call their home phone he would be there to answer but that isn't really saying much because she wasn't calling all the time yeah i mean i guess he has an alibi for those times but right The murder weapon was in his apartment, honey. And the underwear. And and there's also other evidence. So Philip ended up landing defense attorney John Salzberg, who apparently was one of the best in Boston. And somehow Philip got him for free. Because when he was arrested, he told the court that he had no money for an attorney. He had owed $130,000 in school loans, like I said. So this top defense attorney took him on pro bono i'm gonna say that that is a marketing play maybe but also it feels a little bit like pretty privilege maybe i mean you're not gonna take on the case just because someone's hot right you're wasting your time and money and if he's really is a big shot lawyer why isn't he making money i think that this is like he knows it's gonna be a high profile case and he wants to get his name more out there as the best but he was already the best And also, the police had, like, mountains of evidence against him, which we're going to talk more about. But, like, yes, it makes no sense. Yeah, well, I mean, I was trying to explain it. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the logic fizzled out, didn't it? Right. So he owed all this money, and it was only made worse because he loved to gamble, as you guessed so accurately. He made very frequent visits to Foxwood casinos and was addicted to gambling. Finally, a Boston grand jury indicted Markoff of the first-degree murder of Jalissa Brisman and kidnapping and armed robbery of Trisha Leffler. When he appeared in court to answer for those charges, he pled not guilty. Which, again, is insane considering the mountains of very strong evidence the police had against him. 
the security camera stills, the positive ID from Trisha Leffler, Markoff's fingerprints found on duct tape used on Trisha's mouth, and the most damning, of course, was the 9mm gun found in the hollowed-out version of Grey's Anatomy, which was a match to the one used to kill Julissa Brisman. Love to hear the defense right now. What is the defense? So, actually, I wanted to give a very quick trigger warning for suicide. Uh, Philip Markov's trial was set for July of 2010, but was delayed until March of 2010. However, he never ended up making it to his trial as he committed suicide in jail in August of 2010. I'm not going to describe how because it is pretty violent, but he ended up leaving a message on the wall that said Megan and Pocket as well as apparently their pet names for each other, and there were photos of the two of them scattered everywhere. No one knows what he meant by pocket, but that's what was written on the wall. So because there was never a real trial, it's hard to say why Philip did any of this, but it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, Julissa Brisman was a bright, happy person with a bright future ahead of her, and it's a real tragedy that she was taken far too soon from her family, and they didn't get any justice at the end of it. I don't have any information on how Trisha Leffler is doing today or where Amber is or, you know, whatever, but I'm hoping that they're all doing well. Unfortunately, that's where the story ends, but that is the story of the Craigslist killer. Wow. Okay. So I didn't know about this case, Mm -hmm. but I had heard of the Craigslist killer. Yep. So he only actually killed one person. Correct. I thought it was a serial killer. I had always thought that. I did too. There might be another Craigslist killer. I mean, Craigslist Craigslist is a pretty shady site. Sometimes it can be. Yeah. So I don't know. I was, I guess, surprised that this is the Craigslist killer, but they also gave him other names. Yeah. Clean cut killer, dork killer. I mean, to think that people sitting in, probably sit in like a conference room and throw these out. It's kind of crazy. It's a bit creepy. Yeah. Well, I guess you got to print newspapers, but fuck. This was an example of great police work. No. Yeah. For I sure. Mean, they were on it immediately and he was stopped. Seven, like, it was like seven days of yeah. him like being insane. That's like honestly pretty quick. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah. But also he didn't help himself at all. Like no. he, he no. did all of like, all of that was pretty avoidable. Not to be like, hey, criminals take notes here. But you know, he didn't hide his face at all. He didn't wear gloves. He had trophies he kept the gun like it he literally made it so easy for them to identify him yeah he used his own personal computer to like send these emails back and forth yeah i mean i just have so many questions that there probably yeah. would have been answered by the trial correct but yeah nobody knows really why i mean clearly he was incredibly troubled and also in mountains of debt and had a gambling addiction and his username was sex addict so he was clearly going through something you know yeah i mean not to say that we're sympathizing with him i'm not saying that we're sympathizing with him it's just the facts of the case yeah yeah it's a shame that there's not as many answers as we would have liked to have had had yeah and especially for julissa's family i mean they were completely broken by her murder she's 25 yeah and had such a bright life ahead of her you know it's really a shame, but it's also very good that Trisha Leffler and that other woman got away. Yeah. 
and didn't really have any like real harm. You know, I'm sure like a little psychological damage, but nothing like physically happened to them. Yeah. And at the beginning of the story, when you were describing it, I was like, this is too easy. Like, I don't know. Everything we discuss is usually a lot more gruesome. Yeah. Yeah. Glad they got away. And honestly, the fact that we have no updates for them is probably great. Yeah. Just leave them alone. Yeah. Right. Go move on. For sure. But anyway, in the same vein of moving on, what's your good thing? I can go first if you want. You can go first again. Okay. My good thing is that I got this story ready and on time. Yeah. It's been a day and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's a bit of a race to the finish line, but we got there and here we are. And that's my good thing. What's your good thing? My good thing is that I got all the chores done for our apartment and it looks good. Yeah. We love clean floors, clean sheets. And Thank it's you. just a simple one this week because yeah. it just kind of like... Having a clean apartment feels yeah, good. feels good. Yeah. Right. There you go. Good. Well, anyways, thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to listen to the bonus episode that just came out, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you'd like to send to us and potentially hear on an upcoming listener's episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Wow, I did that without any mess ups. Amen and because it makes sense and just keep breathing yeah yeah